these days. It seems nary a week goes by when a story doesn't pop up about some cemetery somewhere being vandalized. Now, I may be just a simple country archaeologist, ain't got a lot of your fancy book learning or nothing, but I'll be damned if I can understand the draw of desecrating a grave. I don't get it. At the very least, it just doesn't seem like fun. And if you believe in any kind of afterlife whatsoever, it's the gas station sushi of ways to spend a boring Friday night. Just asking for trouble, you know what I mean? I guess destroying a gravestone is supposed to send a message. Just what message? I'm not exactly sure. Solidarity with the Anti-Granite League? Protesting against the American Mausoleum Society. I'm being facetious, of course. But the whole thing seems so pointless and futile. Especially so when you find out that knocking over a gravestone isn't actually that hard to do. In the news articles I read about, you know, a cemetery that they'll talk about 200 graves were tipped over or something in a night. And they're like, how do people do this? It's remarkably easy. That's Brian Post of Standing Stone Landscape Architecture in Springfield, Vermont. He's a master stonemason and spends a good portion of his time restoring historic gravestones in the area. Most of these thin marble stones, with a reasonable amount of force from one person, will snap them. And most of the multi-tiered pieces of monuments, many of them are not pinned. They never were. They're just stone stacked on stone on stone. You can just push them over. And the ones that were pinned, many of those are iron pins, and they've disintegrated to the point they're not really doing much right. at this point. Um, basically, yeah. you have a tall lever sitting on you know, a narrow base. What also gets me about grave desecration is that, at first, it seems so diabolical. But upon further investigation, is shown to just be cowardly, stupid, and lazy. The work of bullies. People who have an axe to grind about something, but lack the ability to articulate their grievance, and instead take it out on inanimate objects under the cover of night. In the end, the act speaks less to the perpetrator's message than to their lack of respect for community, history, and self. A point totally lost on them, I'm afraid. All that's left to do is sigh, shake our heads, and say, Man, what assholes! So could you see on the map where this, where it was? I think it's just off. It's just at the end. Okay. At least off, at least, this is what Google Maps said, so who knows okay. if that's <laughs> actually, we all know how that works out around here. One day, last summer, I went out with my friend and cemetery warrior, Kate Butt, who you may remember from episode three, Relief, and episode six, Awe, on one of our cemetery treks in Putney, Vermont, looking for the Cathan Family Cemetery. Yeah, so the road just ends, so oh, that's... Yeah. <laughs> Weird. That's bizarre. That's so strange. Well, there's a fence, so maybe there's... Oh, yeah. I don't know, do we dare? The Cathan Cemetery is situated off in the woods at the end of a dead-end road in Putney, Vermont. This road is one of the oldest in town, 
and used to run all the way down to the Connecticut River, connecting the village to an old ferry crossing. This road was made into a dead end in the 1950s when Interstate 91 was run through the area. Those cars you hear in the background come from the interstate, which is at the base of the hill where the cemetery is located. As for the cemetery, if you didn't know it was there, you'd never know it was there. So it looks like you have to go across this person's... Oh, wow. Yeah, it's like in the back of their yeah. lawn. Okay, that's... Weird. Huh. That's a first. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this looks like a path. Oh, yeah. So someone's been back here because there's wreaths and there's flags. So I guess this is it. I have no idea. This is weird because most of the rest of these are just like little stubs. Yeah, and they're all broken. Huh. This one was weird. So I went home and did what I always do. Read, researched, tried to situate this cemetery in my brain in space and time with historic maps, the town history of Putney, and a 1902 family history of the Cathins, where, to my delight, the author, David Mansfield, spent several paragraphs discussing the old Cathin family cemetery. And what he had to say about this place really surprised me. On the night of the 4th of July... 1892. Several of the degenerate sons of Putney, people who had so little veneration for the place which held the ashes of her earliest settlers, completed, with the aid of axes and crowbars, the destruction of these simple records of early history. Huh. Who would have thought the puerile practice of grave desecration had such a long-lived lineage around here? And just as interesting is the modern echo of disgust author David Mansfield expressed towards those crowbar-swinging, axe-waving fools of 1892, whom he called indignantly the degenerate sons of Putney. The turn of the century equivalent to... Man, what assholes! I'm Gail Golick, and this is The Secret Life of Death, Episode 7, Degenerate, Part 1. This whole situation at the Cathins Cemetery in Putney kind of struck me dumb. It's rare to come across a bizarre historical moment so well documented in its time. Usually, it's left to later historians to cut and paste bits of information from here and there to complete the story. But David Mansfield, in his 1902 history of the Cathan family, did a great job committing the history of the cemetery to the record. Further details he uncovered make the story stranger still. Because that destructive night of implement-wielding no-good-nickery in 1892, I'm paraphrasing here, was not the first time the cemetery was targeted. Mansfield said, In 1865, the town allowed someone to build a house and farm on the southern half of the Cathan Cemetery. 
Yeah, with the old one back behind it. Fascinating! That's a really totally fascinating. Who knew? Who knew? Yeah, this is literally in that person's... It's like someone's backyard. <laughs> <laughs> Originally, the cemetery was much larger, coming all the way out to the road, and included the existing yard Kate and I had to cross to get there. Oh, there's some pretty like leaf work at the base of what's left. Yeah, you can barely barely see any writing on any of these. Mansfield reported that seven skeletons were found while digging the cellar hole of the house, and the remains were carted away in the back dirt. The owner of the farm even commented that when he turned his new yard into a cultivated field, his horses often stepped into the divots of old graves. By 1873, there were reported to be only 17 graves left in the remaining portion of the cemetery. A few years later, there were only nine. Over the years, the town and various groups had arranged for some of the graves to be moved to different cemeteries in town, but no one could ever agree on a cohesive plan, and so some were left behind. Today, there are crumbs and chunks of slate from broken gravestones scattered all over the ground, in several spots where the outline of a grave can still be seen. But there are only five gravestones remaining that are intact enough to read. Even these show considerable signs of damage. A likeness of his, yeah. um, his stone. That's pretty cool. That is really cool. Well, that's weird because this one almost looks like it's been shot. Yeah. It's got a big... That's so strange. It definitely chunked out on the other side. Get a picture of These that are like too. the only ones that are really still intact. Well, this is his footstone foot anyway. Okay. Doesn't say much. The top of that's all busted off. Yeah. The readable stones that remain are of brothers Archibald and Randolph Moore, who died in 1802 and 1807 respectively. A female of the Moore family, who died in 18-aught-something, at 18 years old. Her stone is too damaged to read any more than that. The stone of a John Chandler, who died in 1813. And finally, the oldest remaining gravestone on site, that of William Duvall, who died in 1799. But how does this come to happen in the first place, even back in 1865? Why would a town let somebody build a house on a known graveyard on a main road? Well, part of it has to do with the mentality where, if something already looks shabby and neglected, it makes it easier to further neglect and mistreat it. It's a phenomenon incredibly common in historic preservation of all kinds. Again, historic gravestone preservationist and master stonemason, Brian Post. One of my other main crafts is building stone walls, and what you find with old stone walls is a stone wall in disrepair, people will steal stones from it. And a stone wall in good repair, people tend to leave alone. And that, I think, also ties sometimes with cemeteries as well, that when they're in good repair, people recognize that there's value there and tend to not disturb it. And as they start to deteriorate, that's when they're most vulnerable. So, very likely, 
the Cathan Cemetery had already been overgrown and neglected when the house was built on the site in 1865. That still seems so weird to me. Shouldn't the Cathan Cemetery have garnered at least some respect in 1865? Their descendants certainly thought so. Historian David Mansfield, in his 1902 book, The History of Captain John Cathan, documents the Cathan family history, but also what brought him to write the book in the first place. He had been contacted by two fifth-generation descendants of the Cathans, who, upon visiting Putney as part of a pilgrimage to their ancestral hometown in 1897 and 1899, found the family cemetery and were shocked and horrified by the state of it. They were moved to take photographs to document the extreme vandalism, which, by then, included the activities of our degenerate sons. Mansfield was likewise dismayed at the vandalism, and he quoted himself as saying, Alas, that the graves of those worthy souls should suffer such indignity. So, who were the Cathans anyway, and why was it that their out-of-town descendants cared so much about the fate of their resting place, while their hometown cared so little? The story of the Cathans goes back to the beginning of Anglo-American colonial settlement along the middle Connecticut River Valley, between what is now southern Vermont and New Hampshire. The Cathans were among the many families originating in central Massachusetts that began to push English settlement north during the early 18th century. This was usually done by establishing a trading garrison in the remote wilderness, and once trade and social stability was achieved, more English families would attempt the move to the garrison in hopes of it eventually becoming a self-sustaining town. Setting up a town in 18th century New England was no mean feat. First, you had to actually get to the site of your proposed town, having to paddle miles on the river or hike through virgin forests. Once you got there, all of the clearing was done by hand, or with the aid of a horse or ox, if you were lucky enough to have one, or know someone who did. And finally, to be able to even construct a building you had to cut and size all of the lumber by hand. It was bad enough that any one of these things could kill you at any time, but then there were other people to contend with. Indigenous people, the Abenaki, upon whose land you were doing all of that clearing and building. In general, they weren't too thrilled with the fact that you were there in the first place, and so were inclined on occasion to try to kill you too. That is, of course, when you weren't trying to kill them. The Cathans came to this area around the Great Meadow in the early 1750s, right before the French and Indian War broke out in North America, 1754 to 1763. This region of the Connecticut River Valley with its many English garrisons, was a constant target of French and indigenous forces early on in the war. So to come to this area and stay was either very brave or very stupid. Alexander Cathan lived down on the Connecticut River and set up a ferry crossing there in 1752. 
His brother, Captain John Cathan, and his son Charles built houses up on the bluff in the village of Putney in the 1760s. These two locations would eventually be connected via what is today the road where we find the Cathan Cemetery. Its initial interments included mostly Cathan family members, but later came to include other early Anglo-American settlers and a number of their immediate descendants. So how is it that a cemetery of such an arguably venerable family who were so integral in the formation and success of the town of Putney, Vermont, find their memory in such low regard that by 1865, less than 60 years after its last known interments, their bones are being carted away in back dirt to make way for the foundation of a house, and horses are literally plowing up their graves. It still doesn't make any sense. But when I pull back the magnifying glass to see what else might be going on here, I find that I don't have to look that far off, historically or geographically, to see a trend starting to take shape. All right, at the Washington Street Cemetery in Keene, New Hampshire, also known as the Prison Street Cemetery. Another local account of cemetery abandonment comes from Keene, New Hampshire, 30 miles east of Putney, Vermont. It documents an eerily similar situation with their earliest burying ground. Town records show Keene's first burying ground was laid out in 1736, when the settlement was no more than a trading post and sometimes defensive fort known as Upper Ashwheelit. Like the Cathan Cemetery in Putney, the South Yard Burying Ground contained the remains of Keene's first Anglo-American settlers. By 1808, the plot was showing signs of decay and neglect, so the town had put up a fence to help protect the gravestones. But by 1840, the burying ground was completely abandoned, the fence knocked over by grazing farm animals. Many of the stones had been broken by vandals, and others taken by townspeople to be used as door sills. The handful of remaining headstones and their graves were eventually moved to the newer municipal burying ground here on Washington Street. So at the back end of the cemetery here, there is a little section that's been cordoned off with granite posts. And there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine old slate gravestones. Oh, so this is interesting. This is um, the one that has the urn on it is for Captain Ephraim Dorman, died the 7th of May, 1795, age 85 years. Then at the bottom it says, Captain Dorman was one of the first settlers and an original proprietor of the town of Keene. Huh. I don't know if the rest of them, what does this one say? The burials, whose gravestones were either destroyed by the animals or removed by the humans, were left in place and now lay under the intersection of a state highway. But wait, there's more. Another account comes from Bellows Falls, Vermont, a town 20 miles north of Putney. 
It's situated right at the most constricted place along the Connecticut River, at a long, dangerous stretch of falls. This unique geography made Bellows Falls a beacon for industrial development in the late 19th century. And these dangerous falls were also a beacon for the indigenous Western Abenaki for thousands of years prior. Bellows Falls, like thousands of cities and towns all over this country, was built on an indigenous person burying ground. A 1907 town history references numerous newspaper articles from the mid to late 19th century that mention many spots around the village where human skeletal remains were uncovered during various construction projects. Some of my friends and I went to investigate one of those locations. It's a spot right near the old Vilas Bridge, where the falls pass in front of a mountain. Today, this landscape is covered with old mills and industrial development, but the natural majesty of this site in particular is still quite obvious. Usually about every couple of years, um, classes would dutifully march down here That's to look true. at the petroglyphs. I love how as we're going downhill approaching the bridge that you get this majestic feeling from Fall Mountain that it just kind of starts to loom over you the closer you get to the river. It has a sort of shrine feel to it. When you look at the old Yeah, imagine how as you're coming down a, a really steep incline towards the water, how much more impressive that would have seemed earlier on. The falls roaring through there as yeah. well. That would have been really amazing. Right, in the spring or something like yeah. that, how... And no bridge, obviously, so the height would have just been like a sheer wall in front of you. No surprise that the Western Abenaki wanted to be buried here. The 19th century newspapers say that when the burials here near the falls were found, workers had excavated them to the extent that they could see the skeletons were flexed or in a fetal position, a burial practice typical of indigenous people and one that stands in sharp contrast to the traditional Western-style straight-legged coffin burial. They also noted the remains were found with ceramic pots and stone grave goods. At the time of their discovery, these burials were acknowledged outright as being the remains of indigenous people. But their presence was treated as nothing more than a vague curiosity. Nothing about it all seemed to give anyone pause or halt construction of houses, mills, and roads. But wait, there's more! This time, 130 miles east of Putney, Vermont, in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, the Chestnut Street African Burying Ground. Portsmouth, New Hampshire was a busy trading port in the late 17th, early 18th century. Trade that included African slaves. But by the late 1700s, slavery was falling out of favor in New England. Due to the city's history as a slave port, it had a large population of freed blacks, who were employed primarily in service to rich whites, but remained segregated within the larger white society. 
a burying ground for the community, was set up on what was at the time the outskirts of town. By the 19th century, the city of Portsmouth had spread into these outskirts, and Chestnut Street was laid out over the African burying ground, with houses eventually running along both sides of the street. The presence and location of the African burying ground was never completely forgotten. The Black Heritage Trail of New Hampshire added the site on Chestnut Street to its list of historic places in town and marked it with a plaque in 1995. Despite the clear historic evidence, however, city officials were not moved to recognize the site's importance until 2003, when Chestnut Street was dug up to replace old water pipes. Skeletal remains began turning up in back dirt removed from the site, and coffins were seen eroding out of the walls of the trenches. Taken at face value, these four examples of cemetery abandonment are the same. They appear to represent a wider historical trend that people in 18th and early 19th century America just really did not give a crap about where anyone was buried, black, indigenous, or white. In each case, the culture at large knew where there were burials, but there wasn't a strong inclination to protect the sites. However, there's a distinction to be made here. While each of these cases resulted in similar abandonment outcomes, i.e. burials being disturbed, built upon, etc., the influences that brought about that abandonment were not the same. Because in the United States, any time we discuss the treatment of the material culture of Black or Indigenous people, both historically and currently, racial bias is always a major factor. Make no mistake. And in Part 2 of Episode 7... We're going to talk about that. One final note. The burying grounds mentioned in this episode are either on public land and are accessible via public roads or have access via a legal right-of-way. The Western Abenaki Burying Ground in Bellows Falls, Vermont, and the African Burying Ground in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, are located in heavily industrialized and urbanized areas of their respective cities. Their locations in particular are well known in their communities and a matter of public record. By talking about their locations in this episode, The Secret Life of Death isn't revealing the locations of any clandestine, undisturbed burial spots. Special thanks for this episode go to interviewee Brian Post of Standing Stone Landscape Architecture. If you would like more information about Brian's work as a stonemason, stonewall builder, and gravestone preservationist, visit his website, standingstonevt.com. To my cemetery warriors, Kate Butt, Miles Mickle, John Madura, Kate Buckman, and Michael Bruno. And to Jennifer Vanell and Badger Studios for musical arrangement and accompaniment. For more information about this podcast, weekly posts, and fun extras, find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Secret Life of Death Podcast. 
Transcripts of every episode are available on our website, thesecretlifeofdeath.com. You can download our shows from our website or find us on Stitcher, Apple Podcast, Spotify, Radio Public, and Google Podcast. <laughs>